Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm your other host, Paul Keelan. And we are once again on the Untold Train today. It's probably our most recurring IP or product that we cover on this show, randomly enough. But it, we got a new season and it's trending. It's really high on the Netflix algorithm. I think Johnny Football was number one all week actually as the top like sorry to drop like, let's give some context like this is a pretty good summer of netflix like so like uh content original content coming out particularly for stuff that ties into our podcast like there's a one quarterbacks right now you know it covers um patrick mahomes um cousins, cousins. and um sorry for forgetting our other one pretty yeah cool. he's atlanta falcons yeah and he's hawaiian and he used to play at oregon and see that's why you're awesome you know you know the whole back the whole background of, yeah, of all these ones are going to cover for for the fucking uh yeah for these series. The, ah, I'm, I'm Marcus Mariota. Thank you. There it yeah, is, yeah. man. No worries. Um, I wasn't even trying to tease you. I was uh trying to rack my brain by association to remember his name too. But um, Mariota was a, he was yeah. a stud in college. Mm-hmm. He was so good, and I'm actually surprised he's anything in professional. He had one of those styles of play that I never felt would translate at all. He's like one of those quarterbacks kind of watching him play in the NFL. I never thought he'd make it this far. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because like a lot of that I've been watching uh, in the recent days is about how he's kind of a failure. Like they have like dumb Colin Cowherd clips about the fact that like he's had now a few chances to be a franchise quarterback and this will be his last chance. He's been given the keys more than most, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I mean, I get it, but like, it's also like, if you understand, I don't know, just like who he was, his style of play, his caliber of talent and all that. I, I think he's done pretty successful. Yeah, I think he, he fits for, the quality of like, sorry, like a journeyman. Yeah. Like that's a thing. You know what I mean? Just like Fitzpatrick played on home. How many teams? Like never, you know, a lot of people fit into the never panned out role. But I think, like you said, there's a level of success uh, to be like the kind of go-to, not go-to quarterback, but at the end of the barrel, someone you actually want to pick up and put on your squad and you can make a career out of that lucrative career out of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's the interesting about like uh, that Netflix documentary, like, Throwing him in the mix, I think, is a, such a good choice. We'll cover that one later. But the other one I wanted to bring up that's on the trending list of uh, you know Netflix shows right now is Baki. Another new season of Baki came out. It was fucking fire, by the way. We'll have to come back to that maybe. But yeah, like again, just a lot of untold, a lot of like good sports content, a lot of good anime stuff, a lot of just great stuff on Netflix right now. And this series ago, the Untold, like you said, is ranking highly, and we'll get into why because it's. I think this one delivers what we expect from this brand when we hear when we see Untold, like what we expect to to get from it. Yeah, as Netflix has veered more into I don't know niche markets or like markets that aren't about featured films, we've seen a proliferation of like sports documentaries. For one, that I think have done really successful. It's almost become one of their prime, I think, go to deliverables on the platform. Like. I noticed that this summer had a new season of Breakpoint, the tennis docuseries about like the best tennis players in the world. And like you said, Baki is another kind of, I think, market they're trying to tap into, you know, that anime fan market, yeah. which is really intelligent. And it's funny because a lot of these intersect with what we're doing here. And, you know, in terms of like having a big, I guess, feature film summer, right? It's mm-hmm. been a little quiet on Netflix, but They've been cranking out like lots of content that actually really works with our show. So that's pretty, pretty awesome. And we also got HBO that's now doing the preseason for the New York Jets, uh, the Hard Knocks. And I've not seen that yet. And actually, I I was hearing a lot of like anticipation discourse and people seem so stoked. And now that it's hit, I haven't seen too many like, holy crap, look at this scene moments on twitter which we usually get like we got that quite a bit during the detroit lions ones where it would like break the internet for a day Mm -hmm. you know and i haven't seen any of that yet i'm not trying to say it's it's bad but it's been oddly quiet on the hard knocks front this far which i find a bit surprising considering i have heard some drama surrounding them already like they had a fight at practice i think on like one of the first days i know that like the uh the coach of the denver broncos uh sean payton who he Mm -hmm covered with that Adam Sandler movie pretty closely. He's back and he's talking mad crap about the Jets for whatever reason. Yeah, about their coach. (laughs) Yeah, about their coach and just about the organization as a whole. Mm -hmm. So it's got a lot of juice, at least peripherally connected to it. And so, you know, and the whole Zach Wilson, Aaron Rodgers dynamic, you know, with that quote from, from Zach Wilson about 
he wants like to be to learn from the best or something or and just like his sort of cockiness and underperformance mm-hmm. and then you get this veteran in there and i don't know the whole dynamic is just like ripe for drama and tension so i'm i'm excited for that one i did well. watch that first episode and like mm-hmm. you hit on all the things that you're kind of looking for and like we do spoilers on here and it's yeah. really more of an episode of Aaron Rodgers being like, holy shit, I'm a lot older than everybody because everyone just reminds him of it the whole episode. <laughs> All the young guys are always like, I was like 10 years old and I was a fan of you. And he just doesn't know what to say. <laughs> you know, so it's like it's, it's not a whole lot to like tweet about kind of thing yet. But like, like you said, there's a lot of fires, I guess, that can burn up with this one. I hope they that eventually happens. But the, like it's, it kind of tie it to this one. It also came out in a week, like I said, with this, uh, with the one with Johnny Manziel. And then the quarterback one came out before it. And I'm not done with quarterbacks yet, but both of those as just the initial episodes of those series were better than the first episode of Hard Knocks. Uh, and Hard Knocks even brings in Lee Schreiber to the field, right? And Aaron Rodgers is like the only one stoked. <laughs> the guys get that he's a big deal. He's the voice. Like Aaron Carr just called him like the voice of God. And everyone's like, Who's, like who is he? Here's like, go talk to him. You know, go talk to him. But other than that, like it didn't deliver, like like you said, the first episode. It wasn't like the Cleveland Brown one, mm-hmm. Browns one, or like or like the Lions one we covered, where you kind of like left it like raw and like, damn, this these are some this is a locker room. The locker room's not established yet, so I'm really hoping it like the, the next grouping of footage they don't hold back so much on the editing. Yeah, well, what's fun is the narratives of that are emergence, right? Hopefully, they lean into the fact that it is a locker room in disarray or like a, a fledgling nascent group like this group seems like a ragtag bunch this year mm-hmm. and they are in that really strange liminal space they had a decent season last year like they did pretty well for a new york jets team you know their defense was stout really robust really rigid really stingy their offense just couldn't put up points right so and then they go and get this quarterback who i think is already fading fast and i think his level of play is nowhere near where it was five years ago but they overpaid for him in my opinion and so they get all the hype and eyeballs because of that but they also i think are going to get a lot of uh disheartened fans because of that in my personal opinion like they're they want this savior from this washed up dude who i think benefited his whole career not to totally denigrate aaron Rodgers, but i think he was on a very good dynamic thoroughly talented green Bay Packers team like I think he had good running backs good blockers good receivers just the whole the whole nine yards right for his whole career almost and so he was just like a solid franchise quarterback who I think is a little already overhyped simply because he was always in a decent system so I think they have all the ingredients for something that's highly entertaining but like I said just the first episode it was a little bit crickets um (laughs) online from what I was expecting, I was expecting that next day to like wake up and have like my whole Twitter feed filled with like commentary on it. But it could also be the fact that like NFL season's over. And so my algorithm isn't even sending me too much towards NFL talk because that's fair. I didn't even know preseason started. Yeah. Just the first time I was like, oh, it's on. It means preseason started. I missed the first few games, but yeah, totally. Um, But as you mentioned, these all came out the same week as Untold Pop Back. And today we're going to cover officially, I think it's called Johnny Football. Uh, it's a nickname of Johnny Manziel. It's a story that's like larger than life and that I already knew about. And so I was thoroughly excited, but also a little wary because I was worried that there would be nothing new. And so that I think will be an interesting thing to talk about when sure. it comes to this episode. Um, a lot of the untold episodes previous to this, I think, really coasts on the fact that these stories are not in the limelight at all. Like we we don't know anything about Marty Fish as a normal average sports fan, unless you're like one of the like few diehard tennis fans who really follow everyone. You've barely heard of Marty Fish, for example. We talked a little bit about how the Caitlyn Jenner episode kind of suffered from this. Like there's already so much we know about Caitlyn Jenner that they therefore have to like go in overdrive to give us something new about Caitlyn Jenner. The Danbury Trashers, which is like a what the fuck? This is amazing. I've never heard of this story in my life. And I'm like on board every second of this type episode, right? Uh, the Monte Teo was like, holy crap, this is a story that we knew we had heard about. Maybe not everyone, but like people who follow college football. And we are now getting the counter narrative, the real narrative that was completely silenced by the media, right? And I guess to start off the conversation on Johnny Football, it's I would say 
I, I thoroughly thought it was enjoying a pleasurable watch, but as someone who's always been kind of obsessed with, with his antics and shenanigans, I didn't think that they brought too much to the table that was actually quote unquote untold and nothing truly shocked me as shocking as it all was. And I was a little disappointed because I think that Johnny Manziel is very frank. He's an open book. He doesn't try to deflect mm-hmm. or or hide anything. I think he's almost like arrogantly, I don't like the word arrogant here. I think there's a more of a just like a braggadocio to the way he candidly talks about his frat boy personality and interests. I think that he just is proud of it. And I like it. He kind of like, mm-hmm. he claims it. And, and so part of that is like disclosing his sort of bad boy off the field hijinks. And that's a lot of fun. So there's some untold stuff there. But ultimately, I thought that a lot of it was like already heard stuff. So yeah, and like I'm coming from another way. I wasn't like, I don't follow college football that much. So like I know him mostly when he entered the NFL, his draft year, when he was drafted by the Browns. And that's why I kind of knew the narrative, just already the narrative that preceded him. So the first part of the documentaries, I guess would be new for me. Like, I didn't realize he was that big of a star, like, before he'd won the Heisman. Um, I didn't realize he was rolling around, like, celebrities and all that stuff. So that that was new to me. I didn't know. I didn't realize all those issues with the NCAA either. So that's interesting, retrospectively, now, like, where we're at today with that. So that's a not like a, like you said, it's not like a, a fresh take, but it's it's something that intersects with where we're at today and a lot of stuff we cover. So I find that interesting. But like you said, nothing like I was expecting scandal, like to a different level, because like we said, with Untold and kind of the reason like we picked this as well, I wanted to watch it because it is trending higher than just about everything else, uh, which I thought was interesting. Like we were just talking about like one of the reasons we're interested in Hard Knocks is just all the narratives around it. So I was like, why the hell is Johnny Manziel trending? Because like to me, like I forgot about him. Like he's never panned out. And seeing him, I'm talking about me as just someone who watched him from the couch a lot on Sunday, never really a fan of him, always stayed away from him fantasy kind of thing, you know. Pretty like, you know, like a disrespectful fan, but never like a hater on him. Like, you know what I mean? Couldn't really care less. And getting that context was, uh, it was interesting. You know, it wasn't like captivating television or anything like that, but it filled in a lot of blanks of uh, of someone I know, who to me wasn't a figure really like he was in his, like, you know, in his heyday in college. Uh, in the NFL, he was just like a blip of, you know, he wasn't that great. You can tell he wasn't a dude who watched tape or anything like that, but it's cool seeing it kind of confirmed. I, mean, I get that people already knew that. Uh, but it's just like a casual observer. Like I said, I didn't know that you kind of get that. He's like a dude who just like, like relied on his natural talent, never really like developed it. But getting the context of the family dynamic and stuff like that, that's where it gets a little pepper to it. But I, was, I like why it was trending and all that. I was, it didn't really uh, live up to the hype for me. I'm mm-hmm. kind of get that out of the way. But there was some interesting tidbits about Johnny Manziel. And like you said, him actually being on camera, being pretty authentic. That was the hook for this one. The reason I was willing to stick with the with the full episode. That's kind of what my my initial breakdown of this one. Absolutely. Uh, he discloses basically everything. I've read some articles where he's in it. At, this was more around the period in the documentary where he's living in L.A., Hollywood, partying, you know, doing drugs, trying to get his life actually back on track. He was like working out, thinking of maybe making a comeback for the NFL. They don't even talk about that in this. I get it. They They have to cover a lot of territory. But from that, you could tell that he is very, very transparent. And that's always been a quality of his that's pretty admirable and gives you all this shock and awe value, mm-hmm. right? Because he he shines light on a lot of stuff that we assume is going on behind the scenes, but we usually don't get to hear about it, right? Like Reggie yeah. Bush, for example, another huge star, mm-hmm. he lost his Heisman Trophy because of his college behind the scenes, under the table dealings. And here we have another Heisman winner who's admitting to all the same things. And as far as I know, he hasn't lost his Heisman trophy, even though it's a symbolic, you know, award. They they haven't redacted that. And so it it really is for a college football fan and for someone who adores that era of college football, particularly from like I would say 2003 to 2013. I loved it. It took me back. Just I loved all of the footage of how he comes onto the scene, how Texas A&M is this underdog school and the sec the sec is the conference of juggernauts now it's like the big behemoths of the college football world and how he revitalizes their program on his back and he's such a bizarre athlete in the sense that you said he coasts on his natural talent but what's interesting to me is that he has no like qualities that stick out to you right away like he doesn't have a strong arm 
He's not incredibly fast. He's short too for a football he's, player. Yeah, he's pretty short. He's just got a gutsiness and kind of scrappiness that like defies easy observations. Like you can't really like pinpoint why Johnny Manziel is such an awesome football player. And it was really intriguing for me to hear like Cliff talk about him, Cliff Kingsbury. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Right. It was funny too, having just covered the hard knocks. Mm-hmm. I was just getting a crack up on all the connections too. They literally live a block from each other in Scottsdale, it seems like. Yeah, that's what I was getting to. That's basically what I said to my wife. I'm like, these bulls are probably neighbors. And these probably just got back from hanging out, like doing peyote or mushrooms with Cliff in Thailand. He's like, I gotta go do my Netflix thing, but I'll get back. They're probably drinking now that Cliff's unemployed. <laughs> and Hanging out, having a great time. Hopefully when you come out here, we'll see him at Top Golf. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Ask him about his bag of money. <laughs> yeah. But Cliff was great. And Cliff was like, he had a smirk. He was actually way lighter than the whole season of Hard Knocks, which I felt like he is. And I felt like that was such a a tragic portrayal of someone who is like on a sinking ship and the captain of a sinking ship and just doesn't have the like, I don't even know. It's either, I don't want to go back to our hard knocks discussion, but part of me was like, does he have the like backbone and spine to like lift this shit back up? Or is it just beyond him? And is he just the fall guy for yeah. what is a disaster season? I mean, I thought as much of a like deer in the headlight as he became and as much of a laughing stock of the internet and football culture as he became. He never really sold anyone. He never threw anyone no. under the bus. This, you know, this documentary kind of confirmed, like you said, he's just too much of a player's coach. He's boys with Johnny Manziel, and he's like, he's, I like, I love Cliff just being like, oh, well, look, we let him go party, whatever. And I was just like, you better fucking play good today. You know, he was that teacher. If you have that teacher in school, like if yeah. you're that kid who's good at whatever, you're like, I'm not going to school today. I'm gonna go do this. Okay, teacher, and they're like, okay, Jordan, Paul, go do that. Right? You better pass it. You know, it's like shit like that. Like, there's always the a way of getting around things. And, and Cliff is that dude in that system. Uh, but he's also like, like you said, he has a savant vision of, of football too. That's why they need him. Uh, but he's also like a player's coach to the degree. Like you can walk all over him when things are bad. He doesn't scare you or like ignite enough respect. Unfortunately, I'll use that word. He doesn't get enough respect in the, in the professional manner. Uh, he gets a friendship respect. Cause like he's, he's obviously down to go down with the ship. Uh, and like, that's one thing I was like, damn dude, Cliff is fucking man. He's a down ass coach. He had his, Dude's back through a lot of shit and still let him be him. You know what I mean? Like while players like that, obviously, if you're a talented player, you know, stuff you like that. Like, I mean, when you're around a team like the Cardinals and all that, like that's just not which that's not the right fit for that. You need a different type of established talent for that. But it made me kind of respect Cliff a little more. Just as like a dude, like dude, and knowing like all this system's fucked up. Like John, like you just said, Johnny Manziel put this program on the map. People are just making money off of him. You know, he did what fucking, you know, I, what people call a dumb move, but he got his cut. He like, he's pretty blunt about that. You know, he's like, cause he got his cut too through that. He's pretty, doesn't, I don't think he says it like that bluntly, but he does acknowledge like the virtue I'll say of Johnny Menzel kind of giving you the fuck you to, to the NCAA through his actions. So yeah, he, he's such a player's coach that it's cool. But like going back to our hard knocks, I'm like, I can see why he's just not fit for that role for that NFL team at that time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, part of these things that I guess really ruin and actually sometimes destroy careers in professional sports is meta narratives, right? Mm-hmm. And it's about controlling the meta narrative to even control how people see you. And a lot of coaches are starting to get up on that. Like we already brought up the whole Sean Payton Jets feud, and they were talking about that a bit, like how uh, there's these false narratives that circulate and that create. A vicious cycle. They kind of like inform reality. They allow the public to quickly pounce and prey on the quickest sign or the earliest sign mm-hmm. of something that reinforces their presupposition and that taints them. And it's wild how like if someone has a positive narrative and has a bad season, it could get portrayed and seen in a certain way that allows a level of patience with the fan base, with the organization. Whereas if someone's already considered like Cliff weak or uh, too much of a like frat boy who's in over his head in the league, which is odd because you look at the rise of young coaches as the new like vanguard of the NFL, right? If you look at the LA Rams, right? With McVay, you look now at the Chargers. If you, you go over to Minnesota now, right? These young guns who are kind of more brains, less of that traditional conservative old tough dude figure that used to be the like in you know the 90s and early 2000s right that was like the 
the kind of staple for a coach. Yet, besides this shift and and trend that would suit Cliff, he quickly went from like the young playboy with with his college talent coming together, and everyone was stoked for the first few years in Phoenix. And it quickly went to like this guy's too young; he doesn't have control of the team. And he really only had one bad season after like a, a few good seasons for a team that's not that great traditionally. So it's odd that to me that he got fired. It was obviously a year that was riddled with injuries and all that. And and so sorry for the tangent, but I, it just shows how narrative creates or takes away opportunities. And what's wild is we see from this documentary, two things. First, Cliff's whole career was catapulted by Johnny Manziel, right? This uh-huh. story lifted him, put him into the head coach slot over at Texas Tech the next season. And then he got, you know, his college franchise quarterback that became his professional franchise quarterback at Texas Tech, right? And so he had a ton of success over there. So him and Kyler Murray, you know, built a huge platform of of this dynamic duo in Texas Tech. And then they kind of were able to translate that into the NFL. Mm -hmm. And so you see these steps, these building steps, and they all start with Johnny Manziel for even Cliff. I mean, it's such a long chain, right? Like, yeah. We learned from Hard Knocks, Cliff was a professional player and he, you know, we learned their whole story, but Johnny was a huge boost to Cliff's career as he was to Texas A&M, as he was to Sumlin, the coach at the time. I love the talk about all the revenue he brings in, Mm -hmm. but I also love the second thing that we're talking about is that Cliff had the same approach to Johnny as Phil Jackson had to Dennis Rodman, right? And Johnny Manziel really is, if you want to pinpoint or connect him or associate with him with one other athlete. In my opinion, it's Dennis Rodman, actually. That's a good comparison. Uh, not that he was ever been as successful as Dennis Rodman, but just his, his whole persona is first and foremost, I'm a party boy who likes to party and plays to party. Mm-hmm. And sports is almost a conduit just to party. And he says that. Yeah. And what I loved about this episode, one of the, my favorite things was the analysis and the understanding of some people like Cliff that... Without the party, there is no Johnny football. Like he doesn't play well if he's not happy, mm-hmm. if he's not out of his mind, if he's not hang- hung over. Like yeah. it's just wild. He's one of those guys that is just like it's living in the moment. He can't be thinking. Yeah. That's his biggest thing is like think that's, you know, he doesn't want to do the playbook and all that shit because it's critical. It's hard. Me putting words in his mouth, but like it's also him kind of saying like football is fun because he just does it, you know, like we just like we talked about. He, he has the he has the talent, the eye for it. He has a feel for it quote Oppenheimer, right? There's a, the theory of, of physics. It's like those who can read music versus those who can just play music and feel the music, right? I get, I get that in the play for sure. Uh, there's always those type of players. I, I love that. He is a person who has to be intuitively in the flow of life, right? Yeah. And his best games are when he's wearing a Scooby-Doo outfit and drinking all night the night before. I mean, he never actually got to play the day after his Vegas bender, which we'll get to, which is the craziest bender of all time almost freaks out, has a fugue state, loses his mind, goes to Vegas to party, drink, bet, and he's wearing a wig. Someone takes a photo, they put it on Twitter and he gets called out. He's supposed to be like at a 10 a.m. I think Cleveland Browns meeting for, this is a Saturday night, he's doing this for a Sunday game. And he's like completely sloshed in a Vegas hotel at that point. So Dennis Rodman-esque in Mm -hmm. many ways. But I I would have loved if he would have been able to play that game because it might've been his only like successful NFL game if our (laughs) thesis is right. Because his problem is he would never translate at all into the NFL. The NFL is brains first and foremost when it comes to the quarterback position. It really is. That's why we see so many busts of these amazing talents. You just have to have this NFL IQ. You have to get better. That's the thing. Like you show up great and you have to get even greater. Right. That's all, you know, even like I'll reference the thing with hard knocks. Like they love to show Aaron Rodgers doing a no look pass. All that Aaron Rodgers couldn't do no look pass. Right. Which is it's comparing him to what Patrick Mahomes is like, you know, repatenting. Right. And just letting you know this dude can do it too. Right. You know, he's got the whole team trying to do no look passes. Right. Everyone in the NFL is trying to do that. But my point being, though, everyone in the NFL is trying to do that, trying to do it well. And you need to be doing it too, learning that skill. And so, like, a part of that's not what he wanted to do. Just want to make money. Like he wanted to make money and live the life. Yeah. What's also awesome about this untold is that it's such a nice companion piece with the opening of the last mini season. I don't know if they're actually seasons, but the last episode to kick off another slate of untold episodes mm-hmm. was the Monty Teo one, right? Yeah, a lot and... of interesting comparisons to that one. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off there, but I was thinking just the family comparisons because we keep talking about Giant Menzel. One thing we get from Giant Menzel is like his behavior is kind of sanctioned and reinforced by his 
siblings, his father, his, um, you know, his mother, uh, they all kind of acknowledge it and deny their roles <laughs> and, and, you know, him kind of, he is, he's just a brat. Like, you know, he's, he's pretty open about that. Right. It's because he was raised to be a brat where we have Monty Teo, who is just raised to be like obedient to a, to the T respectful. Um, you know, like I, like you listen to my episode, like I say, he's an easy target, unfortunately, because he, because he's been trained so well, but it's such a contrast, right. Uh, like both of them end up in the same kind of scenario, not saying like one-to-one, -one, but they all enter the spotlight and the both families have to handle it and they're unprepared for it. And the way they handle it is just completely different. So I find that really just fascinating right away. Like this is all the same same year and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, they're the they're two finalists for the Heisman Trophy, taking all the photos together at the end of the year. And they're the two stories of that, that year in college football, a multi-billion dollar industry mm -hmm. annually when it, when it comes to football season and far and beyond any other story. They were the stories of that year and will always be. They'll live in the lore. I mean, as a college football fan, it was so interesting to learn. He had a kind of gag order from his coach. He couldn't talk to the media. And that kind of built this mystery. I love that about it, right? With, with Johnny Manziel. He couldn't show to the public how kind of normal frat boyish he was. So he had this greater enigma. And, you know, going into Alabama at that point and beating Alabama, they, they did focus on it as they should. They made that feel really epic too, just as like a, as an ignorant viewer about it. I was like, that was one of the better, the whole coverage of his college uh, origins, if you will. And his, even his high school uh, origins, they go through the academy were just like a loom name, but provide, I thought we were the best parts of the documentary because it really establishes like, like we're going back to like the foundations, the family values, what was instilled in him growing up. And like, as he says, how that goes out the window in like six weeks when he gets to college, right? Versus like going back to like Monty Teo, where he was struggling with his faith and trying to reconnect to, to his house, like to his family roots. I, I found that so fascinating right away. I was like, such poor opposites, but also, like you said, finding success in the same uh, endeavor in the same field. I love that you brought up the fact that you were even kind of seduced by that win, by the depiction of that as someone who's not mm. as much of a college football fan. Cause I was curious about that because like, it's like the little giants beating their enemy in the little giants movie, right? Like yeah, for little Texas A&M for their first year in the sec to beat Alabama in Tuscaloosa is just unreal. It's a huge win at that period. They were unbeatable under Nick Saban and that they still are almost, but now we have at least Georgia too. I don't want to get too much into college football talk, but it was a monumental college football defying and rattling win. It just hmm. completely shocked the entire landscape and everyone. And I still remember like, it just like broke that Saturday, like broke the news, broke like sports. It was just like, holy crap, Alabama lost. And they lost oh. to this freshman quarterback at Texas A&M. Like what? It, it's a weird sport where like those upsets at a certain level, just don't happen much. It's not yeah. even like the NFL, where if you're the worst team, you can beat the best team on any given Sunday. Obviously, you can in college football, but it is so much more rare. And so that was a, it was fun. And that's what really spearheaded his narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have that, you have Monty Teo, the same season, the same time, having his big surge. And so these are just like the poster childs. And like you said, I like that you're focusing on the family more than I am. And the sort of themes, the sort of dynamics, because you know what, at the end of the day, they're so different, yet they're also still solid families in a weird way. Like the most cognitive dissonance I had about this was like, should I be critical of his parents? You know, you're assuming they kind of, I don't know, fostered Johnny Manziel's bad boy yeah. proclivities. They kind of like probably spoiled him, right? He seems like a little bit of a spoiled brat, a narcissist. At the same time, it's hard. Like they're from different communities. They're from different worlds. And like, sometimes the kid just is beyond your control at a certain level. Yeah, like, that's what I feel mean? like with Johnny Mansell. Because like you said, his dad, we have the famous, like uh, I think that's one of the things that's trending so much was because there's a part where, uh, like you said, they get him to the combine, right? Because they need him to piss clean and all that. Um, just summarizing the story here. Basically, Johnny Manziel's going to work out. He gets a new agent. We'll talk about him and his friend too. We yeah. want to go back to him and his friend. When he gets his professional agent again in the NFL, his dude comes up with a great plan to re, you know, rebrand him pretty much. It's all on him getting clean. And he does, right? Johnny Manziel does get clean. But then he, you know, goes out and parties with some, in Hollywood, like, you know, the night before the combine or whatever. I gotta say, I love Manziel because this is something I would say. He's like, no, nah, just give me some water, man. I can pass the test, right? And he, and he just starts chugging the water, right? And I love, I love the, like you said, the frat boy mentality. Like, it's like, this is like the first drug test he's taken. It's obviously not like, you know, it's going to be a higher level. He's like, I've beaten drug tests. Give me, just give me some fluids. I love this. I love that attitude about him. But again, again, the point being like, they have to give him more time. 
so the agent gets his dad to basically said he said he had suffered a heart attack, right? <laughs> yeah. So mom has to pretend to you know come come down, get dad. We got to go to the hospital and all that stuff, right? They did they check him into the hospital? They didn't actually. Right, it was just getting the narrative yeah, out there. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot. Of, I like that's the other thing I liked about this one. A lot of this is just like great rhetorical analysis, rhetorical tools of the family of his whole plan of like him how he spends his money is just like getting the words out there and doing something else like lying and then just doing something else very common today but like it's great seeing it as a context of back in 2012 so but that, that's like the one where everyone's kind of like you said like being very critical of the dad but like going back to like the the, the academy the reason he got to play football putting him in the nice schools and all that putting him in like basically a military school that reinforces you know faith family country and all that stuff the course of a very you know great football program and all that stuff etc it was all there Right. And he bought into it, it seemed like, for a while up until, you know, it's, it's portrayed as college. Right. But, mm-hmm. he, yeah. you know, right. It's, you know, that transitional period of him becoming an adult, adolescent, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's an interesting shift because my point being like the dad comes off as both like, like culpable, but also he grounded the kid. He raised him well, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of giving him all that stuff. And then when we get to the part where Johnny really relapses, he cuts the ties with him because he just doesn't want to, Johnny doesn't want to hear it anymore, right? So that's one of the things where I f- kind of felt, I felt bad for the dad, but like I sympathize, I empathize with him mm-hmm. uh, as a father and kind of laying, you know, learning that his, he had to let him go that late in life after he wasted all these millions of dollars, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I just thought his story like, could have been fleshed out a little bit more because he's just kind of sprinkled it, like I said, in these little anchor points in Johnny's life as kind of like someone has to, he's kind of that dad who has to just be the handout dad, unfortunately. That's kind of how he's depicted in this. And I think he's a little more complex than that. I think there's a, he's a little more established kind of like I, I think i respect him just as much as i respect monte teo's parents in terms of the way like i said they run with that really hard like puritan work ethic yeah it's it's interesting to see how like father son father daughter whatever relationships parent to child relationships the mom was in there too a little bit but she was like the one that's just kind of freaking out <laughs> like, they said like when they called her about the heart attack she was crying the whole time that's what the agent's saying and so i got a really just from that little detail I was like, oh, I kind of know what her role on this. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? She's like a, a caring, doting mother with this kind of crazy child too. And I think the father took the reins and a lot of the disciplining and raising of him, in, you know, and at least in his sports aspects of life. And so she's a little bit just like in over her head as well. I thought it was a little petty for them to blame on the coaches at Texas A&M. forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> I do. But like, that was the only thing that bummed me out is like, okay, I was actually withholding from critiquing you. But if you're going to start critiquing them, in my mind, I want to start critiquing you a little bit because like, mm-hmm. yes, you should not be absolutely culpable for what your now adult son is doing in his life, you know, for his lack of maturity, for his lack of discipline. At the same time, how dare you try to pin this on a coach of a football team with yeah. like so That's many athletes when you had the, his whole childhood to instill certain qualities. Like we see Monte Teo's fish out of water. He's across the world from his family. He mm. doesn't get lost at all. Like they instilled those values. And, you know, I don't want to get into nature versus nurture. Don't know. Right. Mm. We never know. It's all blurry, but like, you can see like that there is some power of, the family dynamic as a instructive and nurturing force. And not that they completely felt like we said he was a success. Like he seemed like he went to college with a decent head on his shoulders, Mm -hmm. but it it seems like they didn't quite inculcate certain behavioral habits enough. (laughs) And so it was a slippery slope once he started getting intoxicated and pulled into the sex, drugs, and rock and roll aspect of, of celebrity, right? In college football. So it really fascinating dynamic there you you seem like you wanted to say something on that so i was gonna bring up johnny's like childhood friend nate fitch is like primarily like featured in this and i thought they're still buddy buddy i just thought the documentary did a good job just to give context where they have um almost seems like johnny and him are telling the same story right from the same perspective uh in different interviews and then it gets to a point where basically like i mentioned earlier johnny's gonna get a new agent and he says he hasn't talked to nate fitch since then Mm-hmm. I just thought it was a really good cut in this documentary because it seemed based on their canter and the way they're reminiscing and how involved they were in their stories. It seems like they won. I'm not saying they got the truth, but they got something great out of it. But they really captured just like the, the vision in that relationship, like how it just ended. Uh, I thought that was really great. Uh, but Nate, but going back to what we we're talking about, is this interesting like figure and like, I don't want to say like influence. I don't think he like influences Johnny at all. He kind of like facilitates Johnny's like, vices i guess they both have right so like like, it's like they both want to live the same lifestyle johnny's one who's got the money but he's the one who can help make it so they can you know 
beat the systems, right? So in a weird way, John needs him and he needs each other. And they're both boys, right? Mm-hmm. That's like childhood best friends. But I, I, I was so fascinated by like the um the scheme that they kind of come up with, with Nate being like the fall guy, the fall guy who basically is one taking the money, right? For these autographs. Um, so that when they get caught or whatever, he's the one who was, was it 80, 20 or something like that? I just found mm-hmm. it fascinating. Yes. Like it's a certain percentage of cash you can take and that he could have and still just get slightly punished for. That was like super fascinating. I loved like the deviousness. I liked the part where they described the night where they um, just, where they're drunk hanging out. They just like, what are the 10 bucket list items we want to do? And we're going to go do it kind of thing. Right. Oh no, I had like super bad, like super bad vibes to me. It reminded me like that. I'm not like, obviously there were athletes and super bad, but like that, that aspect, aspiring end of call, end of high school, what are we going to do next? Kind of like, you know, what are we dreaming for? I, I like the way they, that it's portrayed. I like the way that, like, the, like I said, both of them kind of confirm it. And I like the way that you see once it's like achieved, right? How quickly like Nate's like cast aside, right? It's that, that's that thing we see a lot before we're talking about it. I think, um, with that skate anime, right? <laughs> if I remember right, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of reminded me of like that, that kind of reoccurring theme in sports. But yeah, I thought like John Nate was interesting, right? Because we were going back to like uh, the dad talking about, you know, you give your give your kid to this program and you expect them to this, but like his kid was always kind of around sketchy dudes, right? Mm-hmm. And the family seemed to like not really like, did they ever diss Nate in it? No, they never dissed him. Yeah, um, like they never said like he's part of the family or anything like that either. <laughs> but you know, you kind yeah. of get vibes that maybe he was. Is my kind yeah. of point. Like he's a childhood oh, yeah. friend who like that, right? Kind of like going. It's kind of an interesting way of like illuminating what we're talking about the family, where they seem to portray a pretty stable output of traditional beliefs, but they're also really quick, like you said, to cut cut what's convenient for the narrative. Mm-hmm. I.e., being Nate, et cetera, et cetera. Like I thought that was an interesting, like underlying point that they're able to kind of get in there just with Nate's raw footage and kind of juxtaposed with what we get from both their interviews and then like the collage of the like TMZ footage and all that mm-hmm. really well done. I thought by this documentary, that was one of the better parts of it. I thought as, as a like whole composition. Absolutely. And I'm just realizing too, like there's a few scenes where the parents are like, we're trying to talk with Johnny and he's just not listening. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's yeah, just this, end, like, yeah. yeah. He, and I think even a few incidents during college, they start to see that like, He's now doing his own thing. He is so under the spell of his fame. You know, just if you're hanging out, like like I think someone says with Drake and I mean, everyone he's hanging out with, he's like, like with like LeBron, like. LeBron, Dave from Barstool's uh, Sports, mm-hmm. they show him drinking with, um, you know, he's just with the, like A-list, B-list celebrities in both the music and entertainment world and going to these huge parties, you know, splurging on front row court side seats and he's with this boy like i would call nate his wingman right and they were totally facilitating each other i wouldn't say that either one should be critiqued or culpable solitarily it totally feels like a joint venture right and i totally understand their dynamic and those types of dudes like just like two guys in college who kind of start to get a scheme they're making money they're partying hard they're living this like jet setting all over the country lifestyle. I mean, it's just too, too attractive. It's too seductive for college students to, to almost say no to, right? Unless you're very grounded. So told, totally bought into that. And it's also just insane to see how inept the NCAA was at indicting them for the autograph signing yeah. side hustle, right? The whole ruse, the whole oil money backstory that they created was probably the funniest part in the whole thing. And I thought I got a real kick out of all the people, pretty big, like analysts online who like posted to this day, I completely believe that he came from oil money. Like (laughs) we see that amazing montage with like Stephen A. Smith and Colin Coward all saying like uh, Skip Bayless even saying like, oh, he's a, he's an oil money brat. He's a spoiled child, all these things. Right. And it's a complete Fib, it's an utter fabrication. That was amazing. So funny. That was probably the best untold part of it all was the whole side hustle and the oil money. And along with the dad's fake heart attack. And what I what I called in my quick review, a heist that they pulled off for the yeah. NFL, for the NFL draft and combine, which they do a nice job though of showing that like he kind of gets his due because he made like almost like a billion dollars. If you think about the revenue streams that got boosted at Texas A&M by just his like breakout story, right? He he got his cut, but at the same time, 
poor Cleveland is the dummy in all this. And <laughs> it's almost karmic, right? Because like you think of draft day, you think of the history of Cleveland Browns football. They are just like the dumbest front office in the league. Oh, I yeah. mean, even to today, overpaying for Deshaun Watson. Like it's just <laughs> time and time again, they just literally make the most brain dead move you could possibly make. And obviously everyone else knew that it was kind of a ruse. Like Dallas skipped on him. They picked another nobody quarterback before him who hasn't panned out either, like third in that year's draft. And here comes Cleveland always trying to like satisfy their fans in the flashiest yeah. move. That's a, also the most harebrained asinine move they could make. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. It really cracked me up. Uh, absolutely love that part of it. Uh, and poor Cleveland, man, he showed up. He didn't do a thing. Did not, like we said, zero hours, 0. 0.0 hours mm-hmm. watched on film. And he's just depressed. He's in a cold dying city in many ways, not to, shit on Cleveland too much. I actually <laughs> think there's some charm to it, but you know, everyone knows it's kind of like the Midwest no man's land of a big city. Um, it has some amazing history like rock and roll history and so forth, but it's a little bleak, a little depressing there as we get from Henzel who'd sit in his condo and look out at the like gray lake all day. <laughs> that was just uh, really funny. And he just totally lost his mojo because he had nowhere to nowhere to go not he actually had to put in the hours <laughs> just uh, it's also funny as just a, a parable of like someone who actually gets a real job for the first time it's yeah that's my first thought was like he worked so hard his whole life to get that job and he just realized i don't like that job mm-hmm. i just don't, you don't get to get the job you don't get to like try it out he's like i actually don't like this job and i got picked by the company i didn't want to go with and well yeah yeah but anyways at the end of the day for this one i someone i'm a, so obsessed with johnny Manziel that i've like not seriously, but often entertain the notion of writing a screenplay simply on his Vegas notorious night out, <laughs> you know, his foray in Vegas, like in having that as a like centerpiece to explore other stuff. I was, I would say a little bit disappointed in this. Like I, I, I we're talking and it's, it's great stuff. It's, it's watchable. It's entertaining. It, it will leave your jaw slightly agape. I wanted my jaw to the floor, I guess. That's my thing. I think that with his forthrightness and with these imbroglios, these these confusing, messy, chaotic situations that he constantly found himself in, the fact that they didn't press further with more pointed, direct questions into like, what was that night on Ve- out in Vegas like? What were you going through? Like, w- There are articles that cover even that way more, which I understand different mediums can capture different things to different degrees. But like that could have been dilated just a little bit more. That was so fascinating that I was amped. I wanted to hear from his mouth on a on a screen, you know, instead of in print, what that experience was like. I, he talks about it as going through a psychological fugue state. Like he literally just like has no control at this point over himself. He's so stressed that he cracks and flips. I think they do very, very subtly mention a sort of cracking that happens. But for that night, I, I remember like he's he's trying to get on the up and up and like a friend invites him and he just loses it and just like goes. Just someone who has no discipline. And it's sad because like you can see that he obviously d- is his own worst enemy. <laughs> the agent in this too was hilarious, right? The, the disgruntled agent with this problem child client right just trying the whole you know combine uh, to, to just keep him on the straight and arrow right to keep him out of the tabloids to keep him sober enough that he could at least perform on these big you know days and the fact that like he had to catch balls the agent i'm talking about right yeah. he had to be his receiver it was one of the most hilarious little parts in this whole thing and he was just a personality too. He was a, he was really funny. Oh yeah, he reminded me of like uh, the lawyer who's chasing cars after accidents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, that's just you know he's like Johnny Manziel's going through some stuff. I can get this guy right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems like that guy. He had a really good plan. Kudos to him. But like you said, I love the way it just unfolds completely opposite of the way he wants it to. But like they still, I guess, get him across the finish line, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. Get this kid across the finish line, whatever means necessary, mm-hmm. and. And they did, they did, they got their, they got their payday. 
Yeah, um, I'm with you that you should write then. It should definitely be also, I'd be down to have more about the agent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Me too. Some good background on the agent. I want to know the agents, how he came to find Manzel and like, what his eureka moment is. Because he's almost like uh, the character from Blackberry who comes across to Blackberry at the weird time and tries to capitalize on it. Uh, that CEO for the company, but you know, just way more animated, a little more, uh, like I said, sales pitchy. What's also wild to me about this is like there's selfishness, and then there's selfishness when you have expectations, mm-hmm. and then there's selfishness when you have expectations for an entire city. And the fact that he can't even muster up the like fortitude to follow through with this assignment, with this position, with this responsibility, when he has a whole city that's so euphoric about him being there i think says so much it's really fascinating it really is like i get being a college kid who's who's just like wants to party first and foremost but once he ends up there the fact that he can't kick it at all and that literally he has all these people looking up to him and he would rather just snort a line and get drunk and Mm -hmm. party with the boys says so much so much i think that is really really what I took from this that I didn't actually take before, like the idea of Cleveland and him, this idea uh-huh. of a city looking for a savior and just this frat boy who just doesn't does not want the job, just want nothing to do with it. But the courage too, right? Because like in some ways it takes more courage. I'm not, that's probably the wrong word. I'm, it's definitely the wrong word, but it's the word I'm going to stick with. It's brazen. It's like shameless to not give into that pressure. Like there's a cowardice, in being so selfish and greedy but there's also a cowardice in being suddenly disciplined (laughs) like the fact that he just like loves that frat boy lifestyle so much that that didn't change him i think it's just remarkable and it's a testament to like how much that lifestyle is part of his dna and yeah (laughs) like unchanged that's the thing i like like I guess it's both a positive and negative is when he does the, you know, zero hours confirmed of tape, right? It's just like you said, it's, it's the idea of like, uh, he's still that dude. Despite like everything you said, everything you see of the quote unquote recovery and the, the shots of him and his family, I hate to say, like, I guess kind of like I said with Monty Teo, he's probably going to fall down the same path. Yeah. Right? At some point in his life, he'll probably, I don't want to say relapse, but he'll he'll be in the spotlight for the wrong reason. Because obviously the one of the things I thought they could have pressed him more on or just like gotten to answer at least give a genuine response on was the whole like domestic violence thing. I remember that being a big deal with him. I remember it got like, settled. If I remember right out of court, you know, he didn't, he didn't Arnold it up the way Arnold owns up to his, his affair in that, in that Arnold documentary. I was, I was kind of hoping for something like that from him to help me, not help me, but m- m- give me, make me respect him more. Uh, but in the end, like, like I said, I don't really respect him, but it, it's nice to have him confirm. He's still that kind of asshole. Like you said, I love the way you could, you put it in there. Cause my whole thing was like, I was, I was feeling bad for all the people who didn't get drafted that year or, you know, all the people who got drafted that year, worked hard, got injured in other positions. And this dude just didn't, did not try, you know, that was one thing I was thinking of, but yeah, when you put it in other perspective from the city, it's a, it's another level of, like you said, of expectation uh, that, you know, you're going in there with. And it's so interesting to not really care that much about when you're actually there. So all things said, where does this fit for you? on the untold spectrum is it a underdog untold episode or an overrated one yeah for me this one's overrated um i'm putting like on the bar like the caitlin jenner one uh where we like said we have a figure we come in with high expectations it doesn't really meet those expectations uh you do leave us something new i'm not saying don't watch it or anything like that but of the football content that's out there right now i'd probably put this to the back of the list absolutely i agree i think that this is a breeze to watch as i said and for someone who doesn't know anything about Johnny Manziel slash Johnny football, definitely check it out. It's a crazy story. He's a crazy character. That's why I've been obsessed with his story for a while. But for someone who is kind of really already obsessed with it, I came in maybe with too many expectations, with too much pre-knowledge, but I was ultimately uh, underwhelmed. I thought that there's just too much here they should have also possibly done a two episode one if they needed to like the whole scooby-doo night is just so hilarious i want more i want to like get more testimony and and talk about what that night was like the vegas night i want more about what that was like we're even questioning on this episode like did they go through with the cardiac arrest subterfuge we don't know and i feel like they tried to edit this very succinctly and they tried to i think make it a crisp hour and like 10 minute documentary 
I think that comes through. Like the father deserves a more rounded depiction. I thought it was really interesting to see him mending his relationship with his father and in a strange way, hardening, even though he hasn't actually changed by the end. He's still kind of just drinking with the boys, doesn't have much ambition, throwing darts. They keep showing up. It's a very, it's a strange choice for like, hey, he's talking with the untold execs. What do you want to show me just in the B footage when I'm talking? Oh, let's have me like retirement. Yeah. That was his goal. It's just early retirement is what he really should have been shooting for. Totally. It's just like, you know, have, have me drinking a brewski and throwing darts. And it, it's so funny because it's almost like he's leaning into it. And I, I give him props for that. But at the same time, it's like no understanding of the narrative that is being put out there. Or this is really interesting, a complete understanding of the narrative and sort of a gleeful, sardonic, smart alecky acceptance of it just like yes i am a problem child and this is a perfect uh segue for for what's going to be our our follow-up untold and that's on jake paul the other problem child the other person who's embracing a narrative of villainy and we are going to release these separately but we watch them together and they are great companion pieces so i strongly urge you all to take this as a cliffhanger and check out that episode Without, I guess, anything else, any last words on this, first of all, Jordan, uh, and any maybe foreshadowing of how the Johnny Manziel story and the Jake Paul stories thematically and symbolically synchronize. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to kind of break it down. The Jake Paul story is Johnny Manziel's story. If he didn't want early retirement and he really wanted to make that second swing. Uh, both these athletes are going to go through highs and lows, the TMZ drama, both have the dark point and they both find some sort of stability, but one still wants to be in the, in the starlight and still finds it. I think that's the interesting thing about Jake Paul. That's the theme. And both of them come from stern fathers, uh, loving mothers and competitive or, you know, loving siblings, which I find interesting too. So there's a lot of similarities between them. You'll hear all about them in this next episode. Definitely. So thanks for listening. Please engage, like all that fun stuff. And more than anything, check out the next episode because this is really a one-two punch. I think these two untold episodes drop together for a reason on Netflix. And I think that our discussion on Jake Paul will really contextualize even further our discussion today on Johnny Football. So thanks for listening and take care.